Hi everyone, Fraser here. I'm doing a quick intro just to put today's interview in a bit of context for you. My interview with, is with Dr. Andre Lobanoff, who is a radio astronomer, and his team recently published a really interesting paper about essentially doing the same thing as the Event Horizon Telescope, connecting up the world's telescopes into one big, big radio observatory. But they added a space telescope that was about the distance to the moon. And so as you know, with interferometry, you get a telescope that is the size of the distance between the telescopes. And in this case, the size was enormous. And they ended up creating an image with five times the resolution of what the Event Horizon Telescope did. I, I, I don't understand why this isn't bigger news. It was incredible. It was really interesting to me. And I was really fortunate to be able to talk to Dr. Lobanov about this work and really sort of how interferometry works, what the limits of of radio telescopes are and what we can see for the future. I just warn you, uh, his connection wasn't great. The audio quality wasn't great. And so you may find the audio quality isn't uh, up to the usual standard. But I promise you the the conversation that we have is absolutely fascinating, especially for the second half of it. So please enjoy stick around and let me know what you think. All right, here's the interview. Wave, it's been uh, yeah, it's been it's been crazy and and cold snap. And we're finally sort of getting back to the point where like I, I look out I look outside my window. We're live, by the way, I look outside my window and I see like parts of the ground again. And I just call them like patches of freedom where I can start to walk around on the ground again, which will be really great. I'm really looking forward. I'm really looking forward to that. All right, well, we've started. So uh, the question I always ask people is, who are you and what do you do? Well, I am a radio astronomer. I'm working at Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn. And uh, what we do uh, most of the days is just very long baseline interferometry. So uh, radio observations at highest uh, resolution. No, I, no, I think I mean, a lot of people are very familiar with this idea of very long baseline interferometry. And that's probably made most famously by the event horizon telescope fairly recently. So how does interferometry work? Well, it's just an, an old idea of the two slits where you put two slits and the wave comes through these two slits. It forms an interferometric interference pattern. And the uh, interesting idea is that if you can combine these signals and if you can decipher them, you can get uh, um, an effective feeling as if your lens was actually of the size of the distance between the two slits. Mm -hmm. so it is possible to do this kind of two slit experiment in, uh, in many uh, different um, physical settings, in optical and radio. But in the radio, you can actually record the full information of the incoming wavefront. You can recall it could record voltages, which you, which means the amplitudes and and the phase of the ball of the uh, of the voltage. And because of that, you can actually restore this image uh, very accurately or reconstruct a telescope mm -hmm. with an effective diameter, which is the largest distance between two antennas. And uh, since we actually can record at each antenna that full incoming wavefront, then we can store this recording and bring them together in, uh, in a special settings in the correlator facility and then play against each other with with appropriate delays and we find the correlated signal correlations we find that we reconstruct that double slit experiment in some some ways and then what happens is, is a very nice thing so basically by placing antennas on the opposite side of the earth we can have an effective telescope with a diameter of 12000 kilometers hmm. or in this case in this in case of this image one of the antennas was actually orbiting antenna and it was uh, flying as far away from the Earth as probably almost the distance to the moon, 300,000 kilometers. And uh, since we, um, the recording and detection uh, detectors are so sensitive, we could actually make that double slit experiments or the recordings of the um, uh, correlations 
almost all the way up to 300,000 wow. kilometers. That's amazing. So, now we're going to talk more about this image in a second, but I but I want to just give like like my audience is really excited about the idea of interferometry, and you know I've talked about it quite a lot about you get a telescope that's the equivalent of the separation of the telescopes. You get a higher resolution, but you don't necessarily get you don't get more um, light gathering. You just get the you just get the the resolution. So you need to look at very bright objects. But why does it work? And I may be if I'm like, I may be afraid that I'm even asking this question. But why can why does separating two telescopes and aligning them to the point that they're essentially at the same wavelength? Why does that act like a telescope with a baseline between them? Um, well, this is a bit of mathematics, basically, by, 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 that's why I said I, I was afraid to ask, but but I, you know, no, you know not easy to not easy to explain it with just hand waving. But what's <laughs> going to happen is, <laughs> is that for each, well, we have this idea of, of uh, making Fourier transform of the uh, of the images, and what we do is in fact we measure that Fourier transform in real life by uh, combining signals from two antennas. Or multiple antennas, and each pair of antennas samples just one particular spectral harmonic of that Fourier transform of the uh, of the um, uh, picture, say the galaxy. Uh, so, by placing many antennas at different places, and, and by using the rotation of the Earth so that the orientation of the uh, each pair of the antennas actually changes with respect to the direct and direction to the source which we observe. We can sample many different harmonics of that Fourier uh, spectrum or Fourier decomposition of the uh, of the image, and then we do in inverse calculation. From those samples, we calculate the true image, how it should how it should look, and that's that's essentially why it is working. But this is interference. That's that's what the uh, mathematically or conceptually what is what it does. So essentially, if you measure correlation of the incoming wavefront measured at two different distant points. If you measure the correlation between these between these signals, you effectively measure just one uh, spectral harmonic of that Fourier transform of the uh, of the image on the in the sky. And the more of these measurements you can actually make, the better will be then the, the result of your inverse calculation when you calculate the uh, true brightness distribution or image of the right. object. Um, and, and, and so why, like, I know with radio waves, you can do a more effective, you can do it's easier, I guess, in radio waves than it is in in other wavelengths. Why is that? Um, well, it's because, again, to, to record that incoming wavefront, you need sufficient, sufficient bandwidth, sufficient speed of recording in order to be able to sample that wave incoming wave right and that sampling gets progressively more difficult if you go to shorter wavelengths so by the time we arrive uh frequencies of many many terahertz which is not even yet the optical frequency um it's becomes very much difficult with the present day uh, recording systems so when you come to the optical uh telescopes and optical interferometry you cannot anymore record the phase or mm -hmm. sample if coming wavefront. So you do some uh, more simplistic uh, settings, essentially, which is basically you change the length of the optical channel between the two telescopes. So find that fringe, find that interferometric response by change, by gradually adjusting the uh, the uh, path lengths between the two uh, light rays coming from different from different telescopes. And still, that's done. Again, the phase information, the phase of the incoming wave is completely lost there or very difficult to recover. And that's why radio astronomy is in its wonderful advantage, advantages position where you can do um, uh, the full reconstruction of right. the uh, or, uh, recording of the incoming wave from. Like if I have a radio telescope in Canada and you have a radio 
telescope in Germany. And we both have a very accurate atomic clock and we record we we agree to record at the same time, we can then take the hard drives that are the all of the data, line them up for time, and sort of go back in time to rebuild that telescope as if it was aligned. But as you're saying with the with the visible ones, it's the I guess the, the wavelengths are so small that you have to do it in real time, you've essentially got to take two optical telescopes, have their light interfere with each other, to the point that you know, you've got it down to a few nanometers, and now your telescopes are aligned perfectly. But there's no way to do that after the fact. Do I, is that right? Yes, yes, that's correct. That's so it's again, we are very lucky that we can actually store that wavefront front and then process it sometimes years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, we saw that with the Event Horizon telescope, where they flew giant hard drives around, took them to processing centers and spent the better part of like two years crunching the numbers to finally come down to the final image of the of the Event Horizon telescope. What is the limit for doing this after the fact using a good clock and lots of data and lots of computing resource where where would you not want to try that and shift to real time um well as as soon as you're not able again not able to record the incoming wavefront you're in trouble so mm -hmm. you have to do it real time and uh what we do now well the limit is um okay there's there are many uh, technicalities and problems with the phase uh, stability uh, by when you go to uh, progressively shorter wavelengths. At the moment, what we can do is, well, the Event Horizon Telescope does it at 230 gigahertz, which okay. is, uh, uh, what is it, 1.3 millimeter. Okay. And then we can go to uh, 345 gigahertz, which is 0.7 millimeter. That's about the highest frequency at which the VOBI on the interferometry has, has been detected with interferometric responses between a couple of antennas. And indeed, the NGHT, I'm also working on that part of the uh, interferometry, NGHT, or the next generation of the um, EH, next reincarnation or generation of the EHT observations, are planning actually to go to uh, 345 gigahertz. There are also plans to uh, do some even higher frequencies from space, but it is. Uh, very far away at the moment. Right. It's just just the initial ideas to yeah. perform measurements. And so then let's so then let's compare and contrast then the I mean the the news that I saw from out of your group kind of blew my mind and I'm I'm surprised it wasn't a bigger story and I've I'm I feel like I'm the only person who's talking about this, which is quite surprising to me was because you took the same idea of using the event horizon telescope, but to image a supermassive black hole, but you added a spacecraft to that network. And so while the event horizon telescope is just a virtual telescope, the size of planet Earth, you as you say, you added a, a spacecraft that was almost the distance to the moon. And now suddenly you've got a telescope that is vastly bigger. So sort of can you compare just like how how was your this virtual telescope this radio telescope compared to the event horizon telescope um there are two things essentially so you we have a resolution formal angular resolution which is like two times better than the event horizon telescopes it's 10 micro arc seconds 10 millions of an arc second yeah uh event horizon is about 20 but uh, we observe at much lower frequency that uh, here's a 22 gigahertz 1.3 to 10 times lower frequency essentially uh, which means then if we're talking about uh, black holes uh, then we're going to be more affected by scattering and absorption of the emission that comes from the very inner part or very scales of comparable to the event horizon scale so for as for these observations, it could be opaque, essentially, or scattered. In this case, it's just just opacity in this case of, of this particular source. Uh, but um, again, this, this is a, uh, a telescope which is on, on 
was on board of the uh, Russian satellite Radio Astron, which was launched in 2011, and uh, we're still processing the data again. <laughs> Using our luck. Um, uh, so this telescope has ended its operations in 2019, and uh, so this is the last remaining bits of the, of the data. And it's luckily for us, one of those observations actually, again, set a new world record on the angular resolution. Was, was this planned? Like, was it planned in advance that you're going to be gathering all this data and using the, the image from the, the Russian satellite? Or were, was this something you were able to do after the fact? No, no, of course, it's a, it's a long time project. Yeah. In, in fact, in fact, when I was doing my master's thesis in 1990, uh, I was told that my model, my little model, would be applied to the data from, from that satellite, from Radio Astro. And it took it, after that, it took it 21 years to, uh, to wow. actually build. So all those years, we, just, we did something with just preparations and everything. So it's a very much uh, long time uh, effort, and the effort scattered across the globe. This collaboration is actually essentially uh radio astronomers all over the place hmm. from australia to canada us europe uh, Asia. And, and so you gathered your data before the event horizon telescope yes but right. this is, have only been able to finish yeah. the computation now um well because the um, to correlate to perform this correlation it is not easy yeah to to calibrate the data is also not easy. Uh, to image them is also not quite easy. And then to analyze and perform physical modeling is another task. And we're a small, relatively small group of people. So essentially, uh, what, what happens is that we have for this telescope, for this, for Radio Astro, there were three major key science programs uh, focused on different aspects of AGM. Uh, that's because that's at these frequencies that's active galactic nuclei active galactic nuclei yeah um so we processing gradually we're coming to actually to uh, to a close with this processing all the data all the imaging experiments which were uh, obtained with radio astro this is one of this is probably um well it's a second or third no this there are many several prs um, about uh, different uh, imaging um, results but this is this is probably just the recent one the most recent one Right. Um, and so um, I, I, I sort of like did the math at one point on what the resolution of, say, the Event Horizon Telescope was. And it was the equivalent of, I think, um, like about two thirds of a meter, like holding your hands two thirds of a meter apart on the International Space Station and it being able to resolve that. It was, as you said, it's like about 20... Um, micro mill arc seconds, micro, mi micro, no, micro, micro arc seconds. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so for you, your resolution is half that. Your resolution is like, you know, like a foot um, measured uh, on a person holding, you know. A... No, I, think, I think it's actually better. Uh, oh. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah, no, I, see, that's the thing. So, so my math is that, it, or what I had researched is that it was 60 was the batter, was the Event Horizon Telescope, and you were down to 12? We have yeah twelve microarc seconds. Yeah, but, uh, our standard standard thing is like ten microarc seconds. It's essentially uh, what is it? A dollar going on the on the surface of the moon. It's much better than what you think. It's a, it's what it is. <laughs> That's incredible. That's amazing. Right. Um, all right. So then let's talk about the the actual work that you did. So what was the target of your observation? So this is um, one of the uh, famous active galactic nuclei, and it's famous. It has become famous because what was noticed is that it has a very much, a very strongly periodical outburst. The activity, which was traced in the uh, using the optical observations all the way to um, beginning of the 20th century, and they found out that basically this object, as it's undergoes through a series of sort of double outbursts every roughly every 12 years. So you can hmm. align them back. They strike. They Try to look for the optical plates and every uh, records that were available for this part of the sky, and found out that even in the uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, you still have this sort of double outbursts. And 
people get puzzled by that and then they wanted to um, uh, try to model that with some sensible scenario and the uh, the one that actually survived and the one that is most popular now is that in this object we have a binary black hole hmm. um, such that the secondary black hole is much has a much smaller mass uh, i forgot i think three or three percent or even three three thousand point three percent of the uh, of the primary black hole and Therefore, when, the, when it orbits the, the primary, it does not destroy the accretion disk around the primary. So the jets and this activity uh, requires that you have material accreted onto a black hole, organized in a disk, and then some sort of a rotation of the, of the disk forms some dyn dynamo effect, enhances magnetic fields, and then collimates plasma into a narrow comb bipodal outflows this is this is what jets are right and uh if you have a secondary black hole it is very likely that when when it approaches the primary it will disturb the whole system and the accretion disk may become unstable or it disappear completely in this case we would not be able to observe uh these um, beams of relativistic plasma the jets um, but since the secondary black hole in these objects is much less massive it does not destroy the disk, it just goes through it on each approach twice. Uh -huh. And every time it pierces the disk, uh, you get an outflow, um, flare, you get an sort of explosive events, and then you see it as, an, as a flare in the optical light curve. And since this is a binary system, then the, um, it's the best sort of clocks that we have in the universe, it's either rotation, of a pulsar or any or orbital motion. Those are the most accurate processes or uh, strictly repeating processes. And in this case, um, they could model it in to such a degree of accuracy that they say that they basically they even detect the relativistic effects. So the precession of the of the orbit of the secondary, um, <clears throat> and that's base that's basically brought a lot of interest to studies of this source. What we hope is that um, we may even be able to detect the emission from the secondary eventually. Wow. Uh, this, this object, I'm going a bit ahead of the ahead of time, is also observed or has been observed with the uh, with EHT. And now we're processing the next set of data with radio astro, so the space VLBI observations and EHT observations. Actually, we're taken at uh, concurrently or almost simultaneously quite simultaneously in, in time so that's what we hope is to see how this hyp hypothetical binary system uh, could be either revealed or kind of would, would affect or would affect the uh, the emission on such small scales and we may see that effect because the, you see that the bending of the uh, of the structures increases as you progressively come to the base of the self flow which should be right right above the accretion disk of a, of a primary uh, black hole. Um, the trouble for us is that, of course, if you want to um, uncover this physics of a binary system, you also have to observe it, uh, this object for repeatedly and for quite a long period of time. If the period is 12 years, you have to sample quite a good deal of that period in order to be able to see any type of changes which would indicate that that evolution, but VLBI, um, it's a very, very ex much expensive instrument, and it's very difficult to organize these kind of measurements because it's, all the telescopes are actually doing many other things, and then uh, VLBI sessions or observations they usually happen uh, quite um, uh, not so often. So, and you cannot basically say, okay, now I'm going to observe this object for a year and a half and forget right. about everything. So, get in line, right, right. Um, and so, and so, what were you able to confirm then with with your observations? Like, were you able to confirm that this second object is a black hole passing through the accretion disk of this larger black hole? Were you able to sort of? Do you feel like you're able to confirm that? Unfortunately, not. Unfortunately, not. But again. Um, we hope to be able to uh, perhaps detect this black hole with more sensitive observations, if it is there. Because, well, it could be that there's very, very strangely periodic events in the uh, single accretion disk. 
it is difficult to imagine. You have to uh, have some extremely strong magnetic fields, which would basically freeze this disk in certain certain state and then would get um, repeating patterns. I don't know. It's very difficult to imagine that you will get that. Let me say it in the other, in the other way. It's very easy. Well, the easiest explanation is that binary black hole. But we have not seen, nobody has seen any, uh, any uh, emission from that secondary black hole. So we may be able to see, because what, what's going to happen is that um, when the secondary black hole goes through the accretion disk of the, prime, of the primary, it may actually uh, capture some of the uh, matter in that accretion disk and form, form some sort of a transient accretion or transient uh, blob or cloud of plasma following that black hole. Maybe during that period, we can actually see radio emission or emission in, in other, brand, other bands uh, coming from the secondary. It's very speculative, I would say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The moment what we see is that, again, the, uh, the morphology of the, uh, uh, of the jet indicates that it might actually undergo a precession or some sort of a um, change in the direction of the outflow, which uh, is most likely then caused by the presence of a secondary object. But it's and it's I mean, I've got the picture of the of your observations behind me. And, you know, it doesn't look anything like the event horizon telescope it looks like a bunch of blurry orange and red blobs. Um, but it's far away. It is billions of light years away. Um, yes, I think that's it was like, like, being like three plus billion light years away. Right. Yeah, you just think in terms of redshift, right, or or megaparsecs. So exactly, it is much far, further away. So we cannot sample or we cannot observe such close uh, or small linear scales as in the in the M eighty seven or in our own yeah uh, center of our own galaxy. So uh, for the Event Horizon Telescope, the next step will, would be, however, to go to um, uh, objects other than these two objects that Event Horizon Telescope has been able to observe. And nowadays, now we are actually preparing for uh, preparing a sample of nearby AGN where we can actually uh, come to a similar linear resolution as for the M87 or for Sagi star. Yeah. And there are objects where you could do that. Unfortunately, that is not OJ287. Um, there are other galaxies in which the central black holes are massive enough and the galaxies are not are close enough for us so that we would still be able to see not the event horizon scale, but the scale of the, of the shadow produced produced by the, by the black hole. So radio space-based radio telescopes feel like the an absolute natural fit for this they're easier and less they're sort of they're more resilient than something like james webb like they're more sort of robust i think you can put a bigger telescope into into space and you can fine-tune the distance and location of the telescope fairly easily in space compared to, I guess, trying to deal with with the ground. If you were to purpose build a space based radio telescope, which I mean, since I mean, there aren't very many are there because I guess it works so well from the ground, no one has put a big effort into it. Why aren't there any big space? Why isn't there a, a James Webb of radio space radio telescopes? Well, it's a difficult or interesting question because there are two way or two reasons to go to space uh, in radio. One is to do these kind of measurements with like VLBI, like the type of measurements. But the uh, the other reason is to uh, to work in in the areas of frequency space where uh, the Earth's atmosphere is not transparent. So this is. A lot of it is uh, some of the uh, low frequency observations are suffering not from transparency but from ionospheric effects. So they will be better done even from the moon, and there are plans to uh, mm -hmm. maybe to do that. And uh, at higher frequencies, at frequencies about above 100, 100 gigahertz or some um, uh, 1.5, 2 millimeters, 3 millimeters, um, 
progressively larger chunks of frequency domain become not transparent from for the for the telescopes on Earth. So you need to put them mm. in space in order to be, be able to observe this thing. And uh, uh, but um, the trouble is there is that in order to get a sensible, a decent telescope, even working in the, in space and in, in radio, I mean, you need to call it. You need to put a lot of efforts um, to um, to maintain its operability, if you say, if you wish. Uh, and it was not easy. And also, there are many other competing competing uh, programs for the space uh, agencies. So. Um, that's why the um, there was no some such as like James Webb type of the mm -hmm. radio operations. But thanks, for instance, if you think for CMB measurements, the famous Planck satellites, this is radio telescope. Mm -hmm. This is radio telescope. So all yeah, that's a that good point. Is, yeah, you could call that a, C, a James Webb of radio astronomy because it has it has provided tremendous. Advanced, uh, advances in the uh, in cosmology. And so could I had never even thought about that. So could Planck, which produced like the best view of the cosmic microwave background, it's out at the L two point, isn't it? Wasn't it? No. Or was it in Earth orbit? It wasn't. It was in orbit. I don't think it was in L two. Yeah. Actually, okay. All right. I'll have to double check that, but. But again, even just being in orbit gives you a little bit bigger of a, of a baseline. Now I want to now want to look this up. But but would you know if they had said, okay, you can borrow Planck, would would its its observation regime, the wavelengths it can see, the could you align that with work from the ground with the VLB, etc., to to make a baseline using Planck? Well, in order to do that, you have to put a measure on the telescope and you have to put the, either a transmission uh, which would be fast enough to transmit down downlink the, uh, the the data from the telescope or a big buffer in order to record this data and then transmit it later so mm -hmm. VLBI operations are actually as I said they're very expensive in this in, in, in many aspects yeah. and uh, so that's why if the satellite has not been designed to do that beforehand you cannot so, just co observe with that. So I was right. It did go to L2. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. So you can have a telescope with a baseline of one and a half million kilometers. Well, that's what you, you actually saying exactly what is what is planned. This is the next the next uh, Russian telescope called Millimetron, and they do plan to put it on the L2, and uh, for two reasons. The major reason is in fact. Is what I said uh, before about the frequencies which are not accessible from the Earth. So they want to do a lot of uh, operations at, uh, at several hundred gigahertz for cosmological, for uh, studies, and for studies of molecular uh, species, molecular um, <clears throat> physics in the, in our galaxy. But they also plan right from the start VOBI capabilities. And uh, we will try to get the uh, get the so-called interferometer uh, measurements, interferometric measurements, all the way to L2. This will be a, a, a tremendous step forward. Uh, we don't know if it's going to uh, be successful at all because if you we're talking now at, uh, about the resolution of 10 micro arc seconds, then if you put satellite at L2 point L2, you would get a resolution of one to ten nano arc seconds and this is if you if you want a comparison if you're the a planet orbiting alpha centauri so the star the na neighboring star um, eight light years away from us you had a planet and another planet you had a football stadium you would have seen a football stadium <laughs> on that planet so if it was glow if it was glowing in radio waves you would have to set it on fire first, yes. Right? Yeah. So, <laughs> right, right. But but that's the kind of that's the kind of resolution that you could, you know. And I, I've I've looked into projects, ideas of like putting one telescope at the Earth Sun L four point, one at the L five point, and then one at the L three point, 
And so you'd have this giant equilateral triangle the size of the Earth's orbit, which would be able to, you know, they'd be able to communicate with each other and they'd be able to align themselves. So you could probably get to a point where, where the, the transmission is fairly closely aligned at a fairly long wavelength. Like, like once you go to space, I mean, it's interesting, like, if you're looking at very bright objects, you get just a ton of value by by making a big baseline of just separating your telescope and in the radio because you can use those the computers after the fact it makes life more convenient than than trying to do it in real time yes but the brightness brightness of is 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 a factor which works against us we have to have something which is extremely compact and in effect and extremely bright this is also a problem for instance with the uh, optical interferometry they um they cannot go to a very dim object <laughs> yeah have to get more lights uh in individual antennas or sorry, individual telescopes to to get this get the um, interference detected and for us it's, it has been a limit and we have tried to see uh, well actually a discussion before radio astron was, was launched and even planned it was a big discussion if you could actually if it makes sense to put it as far as 300,000 kilometers and many of the uh, scientists they were just very skeptical and say we will not detect anything because everything has to be resolved out there's mm -hmm. nothing 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 no structure so compact but 10 uh, micro arc seconds now we have the same doubts and the same fears about nano arc seconds but i'm not sure it's yeah yeah probably we'll get will be successful at some point. So uh, there would be sort of a limit. And so so I guess people had already thought that the limit was was reached that that you would just this limit between looking at very bright objects and looking at very using a very large baseline like the two are working against itself. And so at a certain point, you may have a telescope the size of the Earth's orbit, but there's nothing bright enough to look at to be able to reveal anything, you know, you could see an ant in a football stadium in Alpha Centauri, but there's just no bright enough ants out there to be able to, to show them off. But that's, a risk. that's yeah. a risk. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you think that there is sort of a, a limit where you can sort of go like, we, we've done all we can with with the baseline and now the only thing that we can do now is make the individual telescopes bigger are we do you feel like we're sort of at that level i mean i guess i feel like you proved it with these observations and said no no we can go all the way to the orbit of the moon and still image an object with a baseline right. that big so the limit is is unknown is unknown we, we do not know when we actually will fail with this with this method it is, and it, what makes it in some in some ways very very much interesting, because you're really pushing for something that which is uh, um, a unknown and b cannot be really predicted. Because as I said, it's 10, 20 years ago, people would say, no, 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 it's just even the moon is too far, and it's going to be it's going to be a failure. We're not going to be detecting anything. But we also on on the way to this uh, new discoveries and new detections. We'll also have to improve a lot of um, other aspects of measurements. For instance, if phase stability, the sensitivity band bandwidth of the measurements is also a very important factor because the, the broader the bandwidth which is recorded at the individual telescope, the better sensitivity we have. And we can actually then detect even uh, much weaker emission. Because weak and bright is not necessarily um, uh, the same thing. Or we can deem it could be very bright because it's very compact but because of the same thing because it's very compact there's not enough surface to make it to make it to make it strong or so it's going to be weak but very bright emission and uh, that's what we're going to be measuring if with this telescope uh, millimeter in in l2 when it comes um we're looking for for this kind of detections for something which is basically a grain of salt but it's very bright grain of salt somewhere yes. <laughs> right yeah that's the that's the trick um 
and so this um you know you talk about the the, the russian space telescope that's that's due for launch uh and th they had a previous telescope and they've actually they've had a line of these space-based radio telescopes they put they've actually i don't think people are, are familiar but the russians have done quite a few space telescopes uh they launched one fairly recently um an x-ray right. telescope x-ray telescope yeah yeah well if we're talking about space will be i uh the whole history of space will be is essentially one and a half missions <laughs> was um the first attempt was done in 1985 and then they used a commercial uh, TV relay satellite, TDRSS. Uh, it's, it was one of this one of the situations where you could actually do VLBI with a satellite which was not designed to do VLBI at all. So the first attempt to create sort of interferometer with an antenna on Earth and another antenna in space was 1985 with that commercial setting. They just made a proof of concept measurements. Yeah. that you can actually detect uh, or measure interference pattern. And then uh, there were many projects which started by different parts of the astronomical community who tried to, uh, to, uh, who tried to push them through, through NASA, through ESA, through different agencies. Radio Astron started at about that, that time in 19... Late, actually, the whole the first idea was um, late 70s. But it really started sometimes uh, uh, mid mid eighties, and um, several other projects went to some sort of design studies or, or uh, some some preparation preparative studies, and they were shut down by different agencies and never got to uh, to a point of being realized. But then there was a second project. It was a Japanese um, uh, undertaking that's called VSOP, uh, VLBI Space Observatory Program which started formally after Radio Astra, but on, on the way has overtaken it and was launched in 1997. And that's when we actually first made images with this in the space VLBI mode. That satellite was on an orbit which was much closer. It's actually 36,000 kilometers uh, diameter, proven by a factor of three. So um, it's the same as if you just go to a three times higher frequency mm -hmm. and you get same improvement of resolution and people were saying it's maybe useless to do that and again the skeptics were saying well but it's about as much as much as we can so radio astron when it flies to three hundred thousand, will just be a waste of time so we'll find out radio astron was the second and so far the last space will be mission so now the the um there's a Dutch collaboration with the Chinese on the on a Chinese the the Chinese spacecraft that's acting like a relay for the the oh man I forget which one the Chang'e four on the far side of the moon the rover and there's a Dutch radio telescope radio right. on that spacecraft which has been doing some observations sort of similar to sort of pathfinding stuff for like what they'll do with the square kilometer array. Um, but, but this is, that's the one that, that does low frequency measurements. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, low far. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it's just no, well, um, it does in a single dish on some, it's a self-sustained uh, instrument. There's no VLBI attempt uh, capabilities but it does measurements again at uh, frequencies which which suffer a lot from the um, ionospheric problems on earth so yeah, and that's a precursor possible precursor to some attempts to put this low frequency arrays or instruments on the uh, on the moon surface right now but that's interesting right because that's a collaboration between the European Space Agency and the Chinese Space Agency on on this one, and the Chinese have demonstrated a serious commitment to radio astronomy. They've built the largest uh, single dish telescope in the world with FAST. They're building the largest steerable radio telescope. They do have plans to build a space based radio observatory. I believe I might be wrong. They're like their ver and and they're also got a, a version. They're looking at uh, potentially some uh, space based gravitational waves as well. So, are are the Chinese working on any telescopes that will work well for for the the research that you're doing? 
Well, China is booming, and we we have okay. Apart from space VOBI, our, our daily uh, bread and butter is ground array, ground VOBI, and of course the Chinese antennas have been long since incorporated into this kind of networks. There is a global network of telescopes. One part of it is in, in the US, is VOBA, very long baseline array. Uh, another network is called European VLBI network. And although the name is, says European, the antennas in that network go from South Africa to China, uh, Russia, and Korea. And sometimes Australians are also co-observing. So this is actually a real global community. Mm -hmm. and these uh, efforts in, in recent times are very impressive. With a lot of uh, new receivers and new antennas working in the OBI mode of operation, and uh, they do plan or have been planning uh, for some space VOBI mission, which would be essentially a, a successor of VSOP of the Japanese mission, or similar to that. Except one of the new revolutionary ideas was to put two antennas in space. So for the first time, we would get interferometric experiments between two orbiting antennas that was not has not been done before so we do not know how it works as well that's amazing yeah um, unfortunately this was there was a lot of discussion about seven years ago and when we were going to beijing for for these discussions and uh unfortunately this project seems to be uh, put on hold for the moment so we because of the lunar effort i presume or many other um, efforts which which also require uh, investments and resources in China, and uh, this can this space VLBI project has been uh, at the moment somewhere on the uh, on the back track. That, that's unfortunate, but I wouldn't be surprised that you know that specifically out of China they've been building so much expertise in radio astronomy. I mean they're they're now the pulsar finders of the world. And a lot of the really interesting radio papers that I, that I look at are being done with the fast telescope, they're donating enormous amounts of time on the fast telescope for researchers who, who want to, to be able to do this, this kind of work. Do you think that there might be like a classified military telescope out there that is observing the Earth that would do what you need? Do you think? There's plenty of classified military telescopes because uh, VLBI and this kind of science is tremendously relevant for all kinds of military purposes. The, uh, the missiles flying so precisely only because of the VLBI measurements, the, um, the um, uh, GPS satellites, they need to be uh, corrected the orbital positions and their ephemeris have, has to be have to be corrected once every week uh, in order to maintain stability. And these corrections are done with with the help of VLBI measurements. VLBI provides the most accurate uh, coordinate system and the most accurate information about the Earth rotation parameters. And those are needed for multitude of purposes. And military are doing it all over the world for themselves. And they of course do not share the no, telescopes. No, no, I know. But I wonder, like, if you could just say, could I please just borrow? I just need you to make these observations. Don't tell me how you did it. <laughs> but, but, like, do you think that telescope exists? Like, do you think the perfect radio telescope for your purposes is out, is out there right now? It just happens to be pointed at the Earth as opposed to in the other direction. No, no, no. They, they, they do it from Earth. I'm sorry. I just misunderstood your question. There's no there's no need to do that from, from space. Oh, okay. So, so there, are, there are no space-based military no, no, telescopes no. that are pointed at the no, Earth. No, 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 okay. I was no. trying to think of a... That's, oh. that's useless. Then it's a UV, um, optical, even gamma. That's more, much more relevant for the military. Not right. Okay. All right. All right. Well, then, then, then never mind that. So I guess I want to talk about the future then of, of this field. Because it's not, it doesn't get the same kind of press, doesn't get the same kind of excitement as pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope. But, but the, the research it gives is absolutely groundbreaking and fundamental. And I think we finally got the public getting excited with the Event Horizon Telescope, with this finally seeing this picture of a black hole. What do you see as the future of, of, interferometry, radio interferometry in telling us more about the universe? 
well, there's plenty of interesting things, but the, but at the moment, at the moment, studies of black holes and and actually proving the uh, the true existence of black hole, which is which has not been uh, contrary to to the popular presentation. It is there's still a debate. There's still discussions going on about the possible alternative explanation for 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 the observations that we uh, that we have. And all of the uh, evidence for, for black hole is, um, to some extent, circumstantial, or could be circumvented by alternative explanations. And this, these discussions are still going on. And the next next step for the event horizon for uh, radiative parametric measurements, if you wish, is to find uh, definitive measurements uh, that would say that we do have that canonical black hole, which with singularity and the event horizon formed uh, around it, or there's something more exotic in, in place of that singularity. And any type of more exotic explanation, if we find an evidence that there's there's such a such an exotic body um, exists, it would be a it would be a, a, a tremendous breakthrough because it would actually it would require change of many paradigms in, in physics. First of all, the general relativity uh, thing and uh, quantum mechanics possibly because because anything that prevents the collapse to into singularity has to act with some forces which we do not understand or not about the, at this moment. So this is uh, one of the uh, very exciting uh, mm -hmm. tasks, the thermometry. Many others, for instance, with the um, with regard to measuring uh, accurate distances to uh, nearby galaxies, measuring proper motions and parallaxes of, of, of those galaxies have a lot of cosmological applications, applications to understanding uh, what's going on with our, with our universe. And for instance, one of the tasks is, uh, I'm sure you've, you've heard about this tension between the um, Hubble constant measurements done for nearby objects and for more distant objects. So the, the measurements do not agree with each other. And one of the best way to, uh, to test this is to measure uh, distances to nearby galaxies with much more, uh, much better precision. And we, we should be able to do that with the next generation interferometric measurements. We're actually trying to, uh, to instigate such a, such a problem. And, does, so, and this, does that give you a very like direct, accurate measurement? Uh, yes, because again, at this microseconds precision accuracies. If you do this ten microseconds, if you start, if you become capable of doing astrometry at this ten microseconds, you could actually measure parallaxes and proper motions of, wow. of near okay. galaxies directly, and that that will tell you. That will give right. you absolute so dead on. Measure right. distance of objects. And, and so, sorry, just to clarify this, using astrometry, this is the same method that the Gaia spacecraft uses to measure the distance to various stars. Right. But you're doing this to whole other galaxies because your baseline yeah. is so accurate. And then you're getting you're getting the exact distance to the galaxy. You're losing a lot of the right now dis the distance ladder is such fuzzy measurements all the way up the the ladder and they all depend on lower and lower rungs so to be able to to image the heart of a galaxy and right. know its precise distance would be again a game changer and and hopefully resolve the hubble the crisis in cosmology no we we cannot we have we we're not doing it yet right that's that's this is the plan this is the uh, one of the actually one of the uh, plan developments for this um, event horizon telescope and for similar activities at the uh, millimeter VLBI front is the potential astrometric measurements at 10 microseconds accuracy. That's what we are, uh, are going to trying to, to achieve or to reach within the next decade, I would say, if we feel lucky. And it would be the same thing. You would, you would, you would measure the angle to your galaxy at one part of the year, and then six months later, do another observation, and then see how much the right. galaxy jumps back and forth compared to the background. That, and also, uh, we will also see the effect of uh, motion of our own galaxy, galaxy with respect to. Right. So, 
our galaxy moves with about four or five hundred kilometers per second with respect to uh, nearby galaxies. So this, this will be what is called what's called the um, uh, secular parallax, which was or CMB parallax, because we we can measure the velocity vector of our own galaxy uh, with respect to the CMB reference frame, reference frame of cosmic microwave background. And that velocity will also cause the uh, change of position of the nearby objects, and we would be able to detect that. So this is some something which is which is going to be um, quite revolutionary. It re requires a new technology to be applied to for the OBI measurements. Yes, but we hope that this technology will be successful. And so, sorry, just to make sure I understand this correctly, like like we know we're surrounded by the cosmic microwave background. This is that first light that was left that was emitted essentially when light could finally escape into the universe. And we know that the galaxy is shifting in this entire universe. And we could actually measure our motion compared to the cosmic microwave background as sort of like a an absolute point in the in the universe. Although obviously, you know, every every second that goes by, we're looking at a different version of the cosmic microwave background. But in general, we could measure our drift through the universe right. right and then again you since since you have this accuracy of a uh, few dozens of uh micro seconds you can start change measuring or detecting the relative change of the position between different galaxies because of these peculiar motions of those galaxies with respect to each other and uh this is one of the interesting perspective for, for the VOBI, not necessarily space VOBI. This is ground ground mm -hmm, measure. Mm -hmm. Space VOBI is, is mostly physics. It's very difficult to uh, to make astrometric measurements with space VOBI uh, apparatus. But ground array view, ground VOBI uh, measurements they provide very very accurate astrometric information. And I mean, there is the I guess the U.S. has announced as part of the decadal survey, they're going to be doing a much bigger version of the very line, very large baseline array, like one that's going to have dozens of, of telescopes spread or 200 telescopes spread across all of North America. Um, you're probably talking about the EVLA. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. The next generation. Right. right. That's the NGVLA. That's what the, uh, this is true. And that's going to be uh, an, an Impressive instrument because if you if you wish, it's going to be effectively, essentially a Hubble telescope quality of imaging images, but in the radio domain. So all you say that the uh, the public has been much more enchanted by by the Hubble images as by the radio images. That's the uh, deficiency of interferometric uh, image restoration. Yeah. And that deficiency becomes smaller and smaller the more antennas you combine together. So with NGVLA, you probably you will have to have uh, quality of images similar to Hubble. In fact, the um, the South African telescope, the one of the SKA precursors, Meerkat, mm -hmm. is just an absolutely stunning image in the center of our galaxy. Yes, of the imaging that it is funny. I think you're exactly right that that the like it used to be that a radio image was a couple of dots a couple of blobs because the the detector is is a very is works in a very different way from the way a, an optical telescope does but when you look at that image from the meerkat of the center of the of the galaxy it looks like a weird photograph from hubble and yet right. it's a it's a radio i think you're exactly right that that all that we needed for radio astronomy to be as exciting as visible is just better radio telescopes and it sounds like we're there or we're about to be there with the square kilometer array and, and others. Suddenly we're going to have images that look as, as incredible. It's a fascinating field of work. I'm really excited at the progress and I hope that this gives people a better understanding of just what this underlying technology is and, and what it's for. If people want to follow your work, what is the best way to, to keep tracks of, of what you guys are working on? Well, it's difficult to say. <laughs> Ar archive, archive, archive for sure. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm not. I'm not prepared to answer that question. I don't know what's. We well, we have 
we have public releases and we have public relation offices. You go to NRAO website, you go to the MPI website, mpifr.de, uh, you will get this uh, all kinds of public information or popular, popular science information or news distributed or presented um, quite promptly after, after anything interesting has been discovered or reported. Yeah, so that's yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, Andre, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today and answering all of my questions. I really appreciate it. And again, good luck with your with your observations and getting that that giant space radio telescope to join the array. I can't wait. Okay. And right. best of luck with your efforts.